Well, hello everyone. I'm Alvin King, host of He Said, He Said, He Said, a look at the world from a seasoned black man's perspective. It is Friday, December the 15th, and our special guest tonight is author David Santos Donaldson. Come on in. Let's have a great time tonight. Well, hello, hello, hello again, everyone. How's everyone doing tonight? I'm telling you, if you're where I am, it is really, really, really cold, okay? And, but it's December and it is Christmas time and we have 10 days before Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, have you marked your calendar? We have 10 more days before Christmas. I hope you guys are ready um, because I have to admit, for the first time in a couple of years, I really am ready to celebrate Christmas. I, I'm definitely in the spirit. Um, and I, again, want to thank you guys for joining us. Our show tonight, Author Talk with David Santos Donaldson, uh, author of Greenland, a novel. He is here. It is, uh, his book is a dazzling debut novel within a novel about a young author writing about the secret love affair between E.M. Foster and Muhammad El Adai in which Muhammad's story collides with his own, blending fact and fiction. I hope you are ready because I mean, literally, you are in for a real treat tonight. Um, before I bring the guys in, you know, so much has been happening. I'm telling you, news is, is just flying all over the place. But being in the spirit of Christmas and, you know, in, in, in the spirit of giving, I, I have a what if for you all because of this story that I'm about to share with you. A bank, accidentally deposited $86 million into a woman's account in a Malaysia bank, uh, the, the May Bank. And this young woman, Hafi, Hafiza Abu, Abdullah, woke up one morning and she had $86 million in her bank, and in her bank account. And I'm saying to myself, what if that had happened to me? Could you imagine waking up and all of a sudden checking your bank account and seeing $86 million at Christmas time that you know you didn't have in your bank account? What would you do? Well, before uh, Mr. Abdullah could do anything, uh, the May Bank got on top of that. And when I say they froze her account so bad, she had to put on a fur coat in her bedroom, okay, because she couldn't do anything. And when, when she told the story, she actually was really angry because the bank froze all of her accounts and her assets and it took them weeks before they would give them back to her even though none of the money had been touched but what would you do ladies and gentlemen at christmas time if if you went into your account and your credit was 86 million dollars higher than what it was before you went to bed so think about that and, and last but not least, while we're talking about credit, 
I need to give some credit tonight where it's due. For those of you who are, first of all, not under a rock, we all know that the Color Purple Press Tour is on. And I want to give credit to stylist Daniel Hawkins, ladies and gentlemen. This man right here, stylist Daniel Hawkins, is the stylist for Fantasia and the Color Purple. And if you all have been watching Fantasia during her press tour, Fantasia is killing it. Fantasia, I mean, David is, is styling Fantasia in a way that I have never seen Fantasia styled. And I mean, every look that she's doing, ladies and gentlemen, it says that Fantasia is ready for the next move. She has been nominated for a Golden Globe Award for her re, I, she, she's been uh, in this role before on Broadway. And I mean, but to see her right now, is a very take charge kind of, I know what I'm doing. I know what my brand is. And I'm just loving all of Fantasia. So I needed to give her some credit because the girl is killing it, ladies and gentlemen. And if you all, if you all are on here, please, you, you can write your comments on here. Fantasia is putting it down. All right. All right. Well, it is time to get on with the show because we have a lot of show for you guys tonight. So if you all will work with me. Let's get our guys in here for the chat. Hey, hey, fellas. Hello, hello, TGIF. <laughs> Look at those yeah. smiles. Look at those smiles. <laughs> Look at those smiles. Oh, my God. Well, 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 look, can I say hello to some of the folks? Because they were in here early today. Absolutely, too. Shannon, yeah. thank you for joining us tonight. Monica, please give our love to Oscar. Hey, Oscar, I know you're watching behind Monica. Hey, Sean, <laughs> how you doing? And Oral Health. I think I want to meet Oral Health. I really do. Because I <laughs> who is that? Oral, thank you for joining us again tonight. And it's saying welcome back. Yeah. Oh, it would well, nice, be nice to dream about all I could do. Thinking about that question that you asked about the money. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Well, hold on. Let me say hello because I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Hey, how you doing, Maurice? Thank you for joining. Oh, my God. Six degrees of separation. How you doing, brother? Um, hey, so yeah, what would you do if you woke up with $86 million in your hey, bank account? What Are you asking you us? I yes. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't touch it. Because like they did with her, they froze everything. They froze her embryos. They were like, you ain't touching nothing. You ain't touching nothing. <laughs> yeah, because I I I would know that I didn't go with $86,000 in my account. <laughs> I wouldn't be touching up $86 million, So, no. Right. Yeah. I, I would be the one on the phone calling them going like, look. There's been an error. <laughs> I know see, it's been an error. See, I would get up and pull my Venetian blinds up to look outside to see, first of all, am I being punked, first of all, okay? Uh -huh. Because $86 million, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that would have raised a red flag uh, for me. So, yeah, I red definitely flags. would have done that. But uh, it, it, it was something to think about. It, it, it was a good dream. How about that? Yeah. How about that? How about that? So you guys are doing good tonight? Doing well. It's uh, as you said here in DC. It's uh, it's a little chilly, but you know it is December, so yeah. can't really complain about that. My my winter break from school began today, so got my tea and I'm ready to just relax a little, get some stuff done. So, well, honey, you can spill some if you would like. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm on the show. 
How you we doing? Bring, we bring the tea. That's right. <laughs> How you doing, Rob? Rob Davis is here. I think this is one of the first times Rob has joined us. I, that hey, name Blue. doesn't look. Hey, Blue. Hey, Blue. Hey, you guys. You know, before we bring on our guests, I, I want to, you know, have a discussion with you guys. You know, it's the holidays. And, you know, especially if you're in this culture like us, you know, when, when you're when you're a black gay man and you're on the social scene and everybody wants to. You, first of all, you, a lot of us want to be at every event doing everything. You know, we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, FOMO so bad yeah. that sometimes we can't even go to the bathroom on time. <laughs> so um, I just I wanted to uh, talk about some tips for enjoying the holidays, if, mm. if, if you will. And I, I want our producer to, you know, leave that up while we talk about it. Um, and and I, I saw this online, I wanna see how you feel. One of the tips for enjoying the holidays, they say that if you're going to events or just trying to center yourself with going out, is first of all, to be picky. And by that, that means don't you don't have to show up in every place. That means mm. pick and choose where you're gonna go, where it would best fit yeah. your, your yeah. temperament. Well, then, let me ask you a question about that, because there are people who uh, invite you to places early, like sometimes and, in October yeah. and for things, you know, for Christmas right. and Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that, you know, you know and love who are like, hey, I'm throwing a party. I really want you to come. Yeah. How does being picky factor into that kinds of situations? Well, that, that means that you you have to decide which one you're going to go to that best fits where you are, your 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 temperament where you know where you're going to be most comfortable you know if you and if it feels if you feel comfortable going to everything then first of all your cleaners bill is going to be a mess um you know you just you, then you you just do it but being okay. picky helps to keep you in a zone where you you're making the decisions for yourself and not doing it for somebody else you see what i'm saying i think the word picky is an issue for me i they I, use picky like, i know elective i you know i mean oh. all yeah, and like, okay, yes, okay, but cool, cool. Yeah, they, they use picky, but I get you, Bobby, because you know yeah. you're, you're a man of a certain caliber, and picky just does not fit It just you. feels, it feels catty. Oh. It feels picky, like, you know, like you're sitting there going like, oh, I, they're going to have really good food, so I, I'll go to that one, and, and they, they're going to have Costco, so I'm not going to that. But that's not, I, I think it's more so, I mean, tomorrow evening is a perfect example for me. This is the season where you mm -hmm. do get invited to a good number of events, and mm -hmm. so you do kind of have to say to yourself, okay, is it possible to attend even a couple of them in an evening and just kind of like show up and be present? So I, I think when I'm thinking picky, I'm also thinking selective in terms of will I go and make an appearance and stay for a while versus something that I'm going to go to and stay at longer. And if you have multiple events in a given day, even saying, which one will you go to? Because where do you want to end up in the evening? So, mm -hmm. oh. Okay, well, they, they said picky, and I, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. So the, the, the next thing they, they, they said is to manage expectations. In yeah. other words, when you go someplace, it may not be what you expect. So, you know, put your feelings in check and just, you know, either be in Rome or leave. You know what I'm saying? Um, the next thing was set boundaries before you go out for mm. the holidays and start, you know, uh, enjoying the holidays. Uh, mm. Yeah, that's a way of life for me. How about for you? I think that can mean a lot of different things in terms of like what you know, whether it's you know how much alcohol you're going to consume and you know being mindful of that kind of thing if you're driving and not about you know sometimes I feel when you go to events with other people some of those boundaries are also like okay we all came together let's make sure we all leave together you know that kind. so it can be those kinds of things as well 
I'm a communicator. I'm gonna tell you what I want. And and there's some people on this thread that know I'm gonna tell you what I want, what I'm not gonna do, and I'm gonna shake the keys when I'm ready to go. Um, the- <laughs> Let me tell I'm you, twirl, I'm twirling the keys. I am a key shaking man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a key shaking person. It's and then the- and see, but see, like my thing with that, when you're ready to go, I, I think it's called. Is it called the Irish goodbye? What is that? When you are ready to go, you just discreetly grab your stuff and go. You do not make the round saying goodbye to everybody. You don't make it a big thing that you're leaving because that energy changes the energy of of the party. When you're ready to go, you just grab your stuff and you go. If you're with people, you discreetly let them know that it's time to go. So y'all discreetly leave so that the party's energy doesn't get changed by your departure. Interesting. Hey there, Alma. <laughs> well, hey, well, that 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 really, okay. And I I could go more into that, but for the sake of time, because I like that voice, because you know you reeled me in. The fourth one was, <laughs> the fourth one was walk, walk it off. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, if it's not what you want, you know, walk it off. And I'm not really good with that. And I don't last, understand what that means. I, I understand that. And the last thing was find a common ground you know, for the holidays, you know, they, they said, find a common ground. Right. And yeah, so I, I wasn't sure, but again, I'm going on their thing. And, and, and for the last, the, the other piece that I want to mention to you all for a conversation is avoiding social hangover, taking the stress out of family gatherings. Hmm. Okay. And they, they only had three, they had three things. They said, first of all, communicate your time frame. Mm-hmm. I'm coming at two and I'm leaving at four. Done. Yeah. Uh, that, done. Done. That, you know, and as, as we get older, that's very important. Mm-hmm. The, the, the last, the second. And when I say it's time for you all to leave, I mean it's time for you to leave. So, yeah. time frame is not just you going, and sometimes it's them leaving. It's the time frame for the party. The party goes from seven to eleven because I got to make last. Heard exactly. Heard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I got a couple of friends that I go out with that don't know how to say goodbye. They their goodbyes are so long. They have they go around the room six times to say goodbye to the same person. Stop talking and, about me on this show. Keep okay, going. I'm sorry. I, I didn't I didn't mean to say that. Um, the 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 oh Alma says walk it off. Anything that sets you off, no no confrontation. Yes. No, not, Thank not you, Alma. Party. Thank you. And number two, they said use the word because. Um, you Why? know, they said you know uh, I thought when I when I read this and did some homework, like, for example, if somebody asks you to do something, always be prepared to say why you're not because, you know, I'm not going to do this. Or I'm ready to go because. Oh, um, no. Oh, I, no, no, no. I, no, that, no, no, no. It's a complete sentence. Can no, you just, it's just, a complete no. sentence. Done. Well, well, see, of a certain, I know y'all. Okay. Okay. No, I got you. I'm not, I'm not going to. Oh, Lord Jesus. Number three. <laughs> I, know I, know I know where y'all going. That's right, Alma. No is no. And no. number three, they said enlist the partner, meaning if you go to a party, enlist somebody that you go with to know what, what your, you know, how you're going to roll through the party. Well, you and, need that partner to distract people from the buffet table while you put stuff in your Tupperware. <laughs> You know what? 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 You know how many parties you've just been stricken from? (laughs) But somebody's gonna need somebody like me to go with them. So you're the the wing guy. You're the Tupperware wing guy. Exactly. That is a shame. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank thank you guys for indulging me in that, and I hope you know viewers, you all got some something out of that because you know we we really need to. Be aware it is, you know, this whole social scene thing sometimes can be overbearing. Yeah. And so, you know, you just got to be careful. But um, also, guys, once, you know, we, we lost another uh, trailblazer this week. 
Yeah. Uh, Andre uh, Bauer, yeah. Um, yeah. Emmy Award winning actor who starred in Homicide and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, died at 61 years old on December the 11th. Yeah. Um, Andre was an American actor, best known for his roles as Detective Frank Pendleton of the NBC police drama series Homicide, Life on the Street, and Captain yeah. Raymond Holt in the Fox NBC police comedy series Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He won two primetime Emmys and was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards. Yes, um, may he rest in peace and power. He was, a, I remember seeing him in glory and was really impressed with him back, uh, back then. He was early in his career uh, mm -hmm. acting with Denzel Washington. And he, he was incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, lately people are just leaving here, ladies and gentlemen, message to send out to everybody, live your life. Yeah. Live, 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 live your life. Go ahead, and tell buddy. the people that you love that you love them. Come on now. Come on. All Gosh right. And Alvin, I love you. I, I love you. Hold on. Can we nah. sit to that? Can we sit to that before we bring on our special? I'm sorry. I, I don't have my cup. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've, I've got my tea, but you're so fired. Um, <laughs> um you, we make sure we put swag That's off in brand. everybody. And I know it's off brand. I'm sorry. So are I'm not you saying anything negative to Bobby? <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you have to state it is something I'm working on. Okay, go ahead. Are you all ready to bring our special guest in? Ladies and gentlemen, Absolutely. let me just tell you, it has been an absolute dream working with this with, with our special guest to put on this show tonight. And and I'm so happy that he's here. So if you guys are ready, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce him and, and get him on, on the show. Okay. Mm -hmm. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Our special guest, David Santos Donaldson, is the author of the novel Greenland, a finalist for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Mellon for Excellence in Fiction and the 2023 Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction. He was raised in Nassau, Bahamas, and has lived in India, Spain, and the United States. Donaldson attended Wesleyan University and the Drama Division of the Juilliard School. His plays have been commissioned by the Public Theater, and he was a finalist for the Urban Stages Emerging Playwright Award. He is currently a practicing psychotherapist and divides his time between Brooklyn, New York, and Seville, Spain. Donaldson's writings has appeared in various magazines, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, uh, Electric, um, Electric Literature, Shelf Awareness, The Rumpus, and the German lit literary magazine, I'm going to say, G Blue 10. All right. Okay. And I know I messed that one up. But ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome. And I'm gonna have him to clear it up for me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our stage, David Santos Donaldson. Yes, <laughs> yes. Hi. <laughs> strong J, strong J. <laughs> David, welcome to our show. Thank you, Alvin. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. I've I've watched your show and I loved watching you guys. You uh I would almost prefer to sit and hear you guys banter than come on myself, but I know we have to go on with the show. Oh, no, 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 no. You Welcome. are a diamond. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So we, we And it's Geistes, Geistesbluten. That's what he said, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I, I, I knew, again, I, I, toyed, I toyed with it before. Anyway, thank you for clearing that up, ladies. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Geistesbluten. So, I am going to kick off because we we want to. I want our viewers to get to know the man behind Greenland. So I'm going to kick off the the show tonight again and say welcome to the show. And if you can take, hmm, yeah, I'm sorry. Ahead. I just want to say one thing. I really appreciate you know your tribute to Andre, and I got to say Andre 
is a friend of mine. Uh, we we oh. met. We went to Juilliard together when we were early twenties. Uh, have been in touch, and uh, through the years, and uh, I was totally shocked. And I'm so, so grateful that uh, you're recognizing him. He, like you, you said it all, but it's just it's kind of touching to me to be part of the show and have him recognized. And you uh, just wanted to say that I'm no. recognition to to him. And glory, he was great in glory. That was one of the early yes, things he that he did. Yes, he yeah. Do you have a story that you want to share about him? <laughs> yes, you do, apparently. <laughs> you can think about it and do it later, but I just wanted to Andre, give you an opportunity. Uh, Andre, when we were in school in the in the in the dressing room at Juilliard for the students, there's the boys' dressing room and the girls' dressing room. You know, and we when we we had to. It was like this classical theater training thing. So when we beginning of the day, we had to go and change into our like all black tights and shit like that. Oh, sorry, stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, you're good. Uh, Andre, during the first couple of years at Juilliard, also still worked part time as a taxi driver. Oh wow! So he would come yeah, in I the get morning. Mess and, everywhere. Yeah, uh, and he would. And he would uh, take these long showers early in the morning, and he would sing at the top of his voice and bang on the on the wall of the shower. And everyone's like, "Oh, here's Andre!" <laughs> Every morning, Andre's singing out loud. He's bumping the wall. And uh... wow, that scoop. Well, no, I, <laughs> but, he, but he but he was always himself, always unique, always himself. Uh, never. Never needed a filter. Was 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 generous with his spirit, with his voice, with his acting, uh, in all aspects of his life. So, right on. Well, well thank, thank you for you. sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And and condolences to you. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, to you as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Indeed. So, in the introduction, Alvin mentioned that you were raised in the Bahamas, and then you also grew up in other places, but. When did you return to the United States? And what was it like being an immigrant here? Yeah, so I was I was born in the United States, but I only lived here for two weeks. My mother had me here because my mother grew up uh, outside Chicago in Evansville, Illinois. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and she and my father met at Fisk University. And my father's from the Bahamas and he took her to the Bahamas and that's where I was conceived. And then she, you know, wanted to have her, have me born close to her mother. She wanted to be close to her mother. So she came back to Evanston. I was born, for, I stayed there for like two weeks until they could bundle me up and take me back to the Bahamas. So I never really lived in the United States until I came here to go to college really, uh, or after college, I really essentially moved here. Um, so basically it was after, after college, I moved to Brooklyn. And that's when I lived in the United States. Mm. Uh, but what was your question again, Bosh? Well, no, I was like, what, what was it like to, to sort of then be be really considered an, an immigrant? Because really, you're kind of an immigrant. Right. And then, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. come back at, at, in college. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, I've talked about this before, but it's interesting. It's, it's a very, it's a unique, I think, perspective. Uh, not, not unique to me only, but unique in terms of the African-American experience. The, mm -hmm. the the identification with the becoming black in the United States is a different 
thing than being black in other places mm -hmm. uh, necessarily. And that's something that I had to learn. And I love, there's a book that Teju Cole wrote, Black Paper. And, he, and I don't know if you're familiar with Teju Cole, the Nigerian American writer, great book, Open City, he wrote, and he has essays called Black Paper. And he talks about how uh, he had to learn how to be black in the United States, just like, you know, uh, you know, Jamaicans in Brooklyn and the, the Ghanaians in the Bronx and the Eritreans in DC, he says, and you know, uh, the Haitians in Miami, we all have to learn what it means to be black in America. Uh, and that means sort of living in the legacy of African slavery, uh, Jim Crow, um, which is a different experience for mm -hmm. us who grow up in countries that are predominantly black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and ironically, when you grow up in a country that's predominantly black, you don't have a black identity. You don't have identity of being black because that's sort of what it, that's the norm. So that's what it's like to be white here. It's the norm. Right. right. So you don't think about, you don't think I'm black, just like a lot of white people don't go around unless they're <laughs> needing their privilege at the moment to cash in on it. But they, you know, sometimes they don't think around, uh, you know, go around thinking of themselves as white they're just humans right mm. they're just you know this is just the human way uh well no it's your it's your cultural way but still i didn't so i didn't grow up with the idea of myself being black not that i didn't realize i was black it's not that you know but the identity the cultural identity wasn't but so it was interesting that process of of learning what it meant and it was also difficult because i was I found it was very alienating. I was alienated a lot by um, my African-American peers, hmm. especially in college, who I really wanted to connect with because, you know, my parents had been educated in the United States at Fisk University. They had a very strong connection and, and also taught me all throughout my life the, 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 um, the sacrifices and the history of what of what African-Americans experienced, mm -hmm. even though I grew up in another culture, I, they, my parents informed me of what it was like. And I, and I, so I had a great appreciation. I was so eager when I came to the United States to like connect with my brothers and sisters. And uh, I was, I, I was very difficult at the time, which is different than now. I, I was from the Bahamas, which is a British colony. So I had a much more of an accent and a more of a British sort of accent. Mm -hmm. which was really off-putting to black people. They're like, who the hell does he think he is right. with this British accent? They're like, they thought I was putting it on. Mm -hmm. They thought I was trying to be white, uh, you know? And so it was, uh, and luckily it was, it was the, it was the em other immigrants who embraced me, the Nigerians and the Jamaicans who was like, okay, we, we get, we know where you, we know where mm -hmm. you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I was really, uh, it was hard for me in college those college years because college kids can be very black and white speaking about black and white about things mm -hmm. uh and like you know once my mouth opened and i wasn't acting in the way they thought a black person should act i was out you know and so i'm sorry i was just gonna it say a, it, was it, a, it was a lonely experience yeah and so that leads me to the question of your journey uh you are currently uh, practicing psychotherapist. You started out as an actor. Um, are, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm with someone else. I'm uh, hearing something in the back. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't hear I don't anything. I, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm hearing an echo. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, 
Okay. <laughs> no, it so, stopped. Go ahead. All right. I'm sorry, okay. Bobby. So I was just asking, you know, a, a little we bit about. Like the... We could have a session with Alvin about the voice he's hearing. <laughs> <laughs> he's a Libra. Okay. <laughs> Please so keep going. I, okay. I was curious for our listeners to hear a little bit about the journey of your career in terms of starting out as an actor. You're currently a, a practicing psychotherapist, but you're also a novelist and, and a playwright. So, um, you know, that journey is not a traditional one. Yeah. So I started, I started out as an actor, as you said, and um, I worked for about 10 years as an actor. And it's a, I, mean, I don't need to say that it's a very brutal uh, field to work in, but it was, a, it was, it was especially brutal for me uh, at the time uh, because this was, you know, I'm old-ish, is, I guess. So er, this was er. like, you know, season? late, the early eight seasons. Thank you. We're like old, or mature. <laughs> yeah, what do I say? Just old. Uh, in the ni early 90s, it was really, you know, the roles for young black men at that time were not what they are today. There was, it was very limited, the roles that were available as an actor. Uh, and I looked extremely young for my age. So I was only going out for, when I was 25 and 27, the time that Andre was going for like uh, Glory, I was playing like junior high school and high school kids. That's what I was, you know, I couldn't go up for the adult roles because I looked so young, which I hated, but now I'm, now I'm grateful for, but. Uh, Different uh, strokes was a good gig back then, though. So you should have been happy. <laughs> That's how you should have been. <laughs> you are what so you wrong. About? Okay, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, You're fired. Uh, hey, look at me. He's just throwing you up. Don't, 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 don't let him get I'm in your way, David. Thrown off. Okay, don't, <laughs> don't, 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 don't let him do that. Well, you know, I right. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so so that I so I I eventually started getting frustrated because there weren't, and then the roles that I wore I was proper uh, you know could go up for, I I wasn't the same problem I had, but probably I wasn't black enough, mm. uh, either with either complexion wise or street wise as far as how I presented, you know the casting agent would say well come in and meet with me and just be yourself. Well, that's the worst thing you can do as an actor. They say be yourself, but really you gotta research and be what they want you to be. Yeah. Because if you, you know, so when I walk and be myself, I wasn't I wasn't a young, you know, teenage gangster. Uh, so I, in shortcut, I wasn't getting the roles that I was trained to be able to do. Yeah. So I started writing plays for myself to be in. Mm. Uh, where people, you know, someone more like myself could be a role that I could play uh, credibly. Um, and that worked out pretty well. And I started getting attention uh, from people like the Public Theater, which is one of the best theaters in the, in the world, actually. And they, they commissioned me to write a few plays and workshops for my plays. Uh, but even then, it was a rough road because eventually, even though the plays were received well by, by some people, Eventually, the final critique was, well, we don't really think there's enough of an audience for your kind of work. Mm. You know, no one's really interested in hearing about black gay man who's not from America. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't see who your audience is. We don't think we can invest more money or time in you. Mm -hmm. That was my story. So I said, okay, um, this, this playwright thing isn't working either. 
Mm. So I'm going to go start writing novels because mm. with a novel, you don't have to raise as much money and only need one person, one editor to say, I'm in, I, I like this and mm. it can happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, as opposed to like a whole, the money you need to make a theater production go up is a lot. So mm. aside to do that, but um, I also wanted to, I couldn't make a living off of that. Mm. Uh, and I was in therapy uh, at the time because I was depressed about my situation with being an actor, with being a writer. It was, I was, uh, I was not doing well emotionally. This is what I'd wanted to do my whole life. Uh, and it was, uh, feels like my dreams were being thwarted everywhere I turned and I didn't know, and I sort of hated who I was. So I was like, I just don't fit in into any of these categories that, that make sense for people. Um, and as I was in therapy, I said, I was thinking to my therapist, do oh, I need to make money too? And I was as a waiter at the time, uh, waiting at a place called the Coffee Shop on Union Square in Manhattan. Uh, and I said, I want to make a do something useful with my life, and I could do something like you do. And so he said, Oh, maybe you can go back to school and do that. So uh, I did, and here so you are, school, and, 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 and I became a therapist. <laughs> And it's a great, and it's a really great match with being an actor and a writer because it's all about human beings and what makes people tick, and understanding motivations, and and looking at things profoundly, and and having an artistic take on the world. Uh, so it's there, there, that that's needed for the psych for the work that I do as like psychotherapist too. Wow. Well, you just you just said something when you said you know as far as being you know being a part of the world. So I'm going to move to this next question and, you know, and ask you about, you know, you have been blessed to live in many different parts of the world. And currently you live between Seville, Spain and Brooklyn, New York. Um, can you share with us why, why living between these two places are most important? Sure. Yeah, I know it's unusual and it's an extremely blessed uh, situation here. So, you know, Bosch asked me when I came back to the United States, like, so, you know, I told you my story and after I graduated school, I lived here and then I became a therapist. So, and at a certain point, I realized I, I can't stand living in the United States anymore. Uh, it was when you don't grow up black in the United, as a black person in you do in the United States, it's quite a shock to your system. Um, to and and I and I think it's this is something that people who are white or not black or not a person of color don't have a hard time understanding. And they say, well, why are you so obsessed about race? Why is everything race with you? You know, mm -hmm. why do you you killing the race card? You you know, live five minutes as a black person in the United States, and you will start. You will know. You'll get it. It's not like you can forget. Mm -hmm. uh, the experience, what it, to what it is to be dehumanized or question how people are dehumanizing you or feel like you have to prove your humanity, mm -hmm. even in subtle ways, when you don't even want to, you, you don't, you know, you might walk to the corner store and, and want to like not look good or be a mess. And there's a part of you that, that, um, you know, is going to encounter when you go there, even if you're not trying to, is going to have a little bit of a, uh, 
shield on or alert up is like, how am I being perceived as a black person like this? You know, if I go with my, my hoodie on and my right, janky clothes, am I going to oh. be perceived as, you know, as a hoodlum, as someone homeless? You know, it's like, it's, it's this little things all the time mm -hmm. that are exhausting. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in my in my office in my house in Spain on, on my office on the wall I have a James Baldwin poster that says, "To be conscious and and black in America is to be in a constant state of rage." Constant. constant. Wow. Uh, so, and so, so I was I was done with the rage and the, and the pressure and it's uh, and I thought I'm getting out of here. So in the '90s, I after I had gotten my degree and sorry, Alvin, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer oh, go your question, ahead. Go but ahead. it's okay. Uh, you know, I decide I'm I'm, I'm going to get out of the United States. I can't live here anymore. Mm. But going back to the Bahamas is, is also very complicated because I'm gay, mm. mm -hmm. uh, and there we have huge amounts of homophobia, and uh, maybe it's getting a little better now, but not much. Uh, you know, it's like Jamaica, which is you know, you can get asylum to live in mm -hmm. America if you're from Jamaica because of the amount of violence you will suffer mm -hmm. uh, and can be killed for being gay in Jamaica easily. Mm -hmm. So the Bahamas, I like to say, I mean, no offense to my Bahamian brothers and sisters, but Bahamians are just as homophobic as Jamaicans. They're just lazier. They won't kill you because they don't have the oh. energy. Oh. But, oh. <laughs> it's a bit, bit shady, but... <laughs> oh. Well, you talk about the challenge, obviously, of, of sexuality, um, but it, it, it makes me think about the book and, and that the book is a novel about a black queer writer who's writing a novel about a novelist and his, his Egyptian lover. So my question to you is, what was the impetus for this book? Like what led to that storyline? That's a complicated story within a story. Um, yeah, so yeah. I saw a comment from someone that I, maybe we can go back to it later because someone asked about black respectability and I'm curious what, what they meant, but we can, we can address that. Well, we, hold on a second. You guys know what it, hold yeah. on, let, 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 let's go back to it. So, because we got some folks that have coming on, I want to make sure that they get in yeah. touch with you. So how, how you doing, Daniel's Sam? How you doing? So there was George, how you doing, George? And Lady Leo, thank you for joining us. Hey, everybody. And Sam, Samuel asked about black respectability. I don't know if he was making a statement, but he does have a question mark beside it. Or was it something that David said? I, I'm not, and we have some, like a, a, two, a 10 second delay when people are responding sometimes, but I'm not sure what, what he meant by that. So maybe yeah, he can me, elaborate on that, yeah. Okay. And he so, will. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he will come back. So, uh, that, so Bobby's, <laughs> for Bobby's question. Yeah, the storyline, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. My novel is very like meta because it's you know about a writer writing about a writer uh, while he's writing the book. It's and I'm a writer writing the book, so it's all these levels. Uh, and the, it starts off the novel starts off with um, this character named Kip Starling, who is a black gay queer uh, Caribbean British writer. He grew up in London. He moves to Brooklyn. And he's, he's written a book about uh, E.M. Foster, the great British writer, and his secret love affair between him and Mohammed el a black Egyptian tram conductor. And, uh, and that's what Kip's story is. And that's my story. So that's very similar. I wrote a book about this relationship as well. 
that didn't get published. They almost got published, but didn't get published. Why I wrote this book is, is, is what I'm going to answer your question now. It's E.M. Foster was not someone who I particularly loved uh, growing up as a writer. He seemed like, you know, my mother was an English teacher mm. and uh, she had all the, uh, and then this is in the Bahamas where in the time that we were all the literary, English literary canon was, was esteemed and what you read. So there were his books on the shelf growing up. And I just thought, you know, I have nothing in common with this guy. I was really that interested in English middle-class problems. It seemed like that's what he wrote about. Mm -hmm. uh, until I was in college and I realized um, that this guy, E.M. Uh, e. Foster was also gay and mm. had to come out his whole life and lived closeted. Uh, and so I became a little more interested in his books then. And I, and I, and I read uh, Passage to India, which is you know about the struggles of, of connecting of colonial white colonial people connecting with Indian and Muslim people. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well this, so this cat is not only like gay, but he's interested in what the experience of people of color is like about. So I thought it was really interesting. He was in, more interesting then. And then mm -hmm. I started to read more of his books and I really loved his writing. And I felt guilty because at that point, you know, I felt I was, I shouldn't be, be liking him because he wasn't in vogue. He was kind of old fashioned and stodgy. And I was like, should be more into like, you know, people who I actually do love also like Salman Rushdie, uh, Tony Morrison, of course, you know, all these people of color who were emerging and as strong voices. But I kept on going back to Ian Foster. I'm like, why am I going back to this guy? Well, what is it about it? And then I found out a biography that his first love and most important love of his life was with a Egyptian train conductor who was not only Egyptian, but he was black. He was a, he had sub-Saharan features and was, you know, uh, he was descended from people from Sudan, mm -hmm. but he was a black man. And, and that blew my mind. I'm like, this icon of, of English middle-class is like not only writing about this stuff with people of color, but he's actually in, a, in the most intimate relationship with, with a black man at mm -hmm. a time in, in like 19, early 1900s. It's like, how did that, how did that relationship work? I was very curious how that relationship worked. And then I looked through a, a biography of his um, and I saw a picture of Muhammad and there's an, uh, then I look, went and looked for some more pictures and there's a picture of Muhammad that looks almost like one of my high school pictures of me. Oh, wow. And I was mm. like, and I was struck by that. I was like, whoa, uh, it was very striking because um, I did a double take like, wow, oh, that's not, that looks just like my high school pictures of me and Muhammad. So then that got my brain thinking, like, what would it like to be in a relationship with, with E.M. Foster? And then I had my real life experiences of dealing in intimate ways while I dated with experimenting and dating Americans and then dating white people in America uh, and all these issues of, of white supremacy slipping mm. in unconsciously. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the most benign way, you know, we, we all know the things, I don't really see you as black or, yes. or, you know, I don't think of you as black, you know, I just think of you as a person. It's like, well, yeah, I'm a person and I'm a black, black person. person. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. So as I started experiencing those things, I realized that this relationship with Muhammad and Foster may be a way for me to explore these ways in an 
that's not so close about my life, but about, but in a way that I could explore these issues yes. and write about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that didn't book didn't get picked up. And then just like in the Greenland, the novel, I met with an editor, and and he was actually one of the best editors in the business. He he's the president of a company called Frau Strauss and Giroux, which is probably most the most esteemed literary uh, in, uh, publisher we have. Uh, and he he liked my writing, and I was blown away that he wanted to meet with me. And he said, you know, I love your writing. I want to encourage you, but I'm not going to publish this novel because it's it's from a voice. It's about E.M. Foster. We know all about E.M. Foster. Uh, and I said, well, what would make you change your mind? And he said, mm. I'm not going to you know change my mind. But he said, what would be interesting if you did write it from Muhammad's point of view? Mm. And that was the impetus for me to start Greenland. Wow. Wow. Now, being ident- I'm on a roll here, guys. So, I, being identified as a black gay writer, I'm curious as to whether or not you feel a sense of obligation to represent the community in terms of telling those stories, or do you feel there is um, a freedom to tell the story of heterosexual people? As a, you know, where 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 does your I guess your alliance or your sense of obligation fall around that? Um, yeah. Well, I like to follow, I mean, just like my uh, protagonist, Kip, people often confuse, think that it's very autobiographical, and it's not really, but there are a lot of things in common that I put in Kip that I want, that are true for me too. Mm-hmm. So, and one of those is that one of my icons is, is James Baldwin. Uh, we share that. And, mm-hmm. and I blame my mother and I thank her, it's one of the best things she's Come to me with me is uh, introduced me to James Baldwin, and she she actually was reading another country to me in the womb. She said she would read the book to me oh. and read to the baby in the womb. Yeah. So I had James Baldwin in my systems before I I had language. Mm. Um, and what thing I love about what James Baldwin says that as an artist, we need to be free of being too strongly aligned to any identity mm-hmm. because as artists we we need to be a witness mm-hmm. um and we need to be able to move freely mm-hmm. without being too strongly attached to identity mm-hmm. and i and i agree with that um so i don't want to you know i had never even considered myself really thought i'm a queer black writer not not into my Publishers decided that that's that what they were going to put on the book cover. And I said, okay, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> this has to sell it. I get it. And it's not that I'm not queer and black. I, right. Of course, I am. Right. That's that's that's. But one of the things we talk about. One of the things we talk about also on the show is intersectionality. You are a black gay yeah. writer, but you're not just a black gay writer. There are other aspects of who David, you know, is. Yeah, and black and gay doesn't like. Uh, limit or define what I am either. Like this, Absolutely. black and gay are both rainbows in the, in and of themselves, right? They're like could be lots of stuff. Um, but I do feel a certain responsibility to something, and I and that is to represent, to be visible, mm. um, because I, I think it would be a crime uh, to to be for me to be gay or queer and hide that and not say that because I think right. so many people need to hear Amen. this, yep. to Amen. feel that they're, and to see and to have 
representation and, and have visibility. It's so important. Absolutely. Uh, I even have, I think it's a scene in, or I mentioned in the, in the book Greenland, something that actually I, I, I countered myself when this, saw this YouTube video of this little boy when, when um, Black Panther came out, first mm -hmm. came out. Mm -hmm. And and the little boy was like, like crying and said, "If you know, I've never seen people like me, heroes like this, a superhero, in, in this yeah. position, yeah, a superhero like this." And said, "You know," and he was crying. He said, "If I, if I, it's like white people, like if I, white people get to see that all the time, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I see that, then I might love my country too." He said, yeah. "You know," yeah. but. So visibility is important. I want to show up at mm -hmm. that without, you know, declaring that as my sole identity, but it's important to, to be visible. But it's also really important for me not to get sort of um, limit myself. And I was going to say ghettoized in, in the sense no. of putting myself in a small right. in a box. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So I just want to say that Brian has said that Greenland is a masterpiece. So yes. <laughs> I want everybody watching, whenever you're watching, to, to take Thank that you, Brian. And we've also put into the chat, whichever platform you're on, a link to be able to go and buy the book. So we really strongly encourage you to take this journey. So yes. David, I have a question for you. Because in the story of Greenland, it really is about the spiritual journey of your protagonist, Kip. Right, and there are elements of sort of magical realism where there are appearances of of goddesses and spirits and things. Just briefly, what is your spiritual or your spirituality like, and how did that really factor into your personal journey in writing this book? Yeah. So, I'm I when I was uh, when I was. So there's a little bit of my story that I left out when I told you my progression of where I get from from actor to writer. There was a period uh, before, after I left Juilliard, uh, which was actually quite a difficult uh, experience for me going to that school. Uh, it's it, at the time it's changed its ethos, but at the time it was one of those uh, environments where they break you uh, down. Uh, and tell you everything wrong with you. And it was really, really devastating for me uh, as a young person to survive in that kind of environment. I wasn't prepared. Uh, and I was, I have to say, it wasn't a great environment for me. Although I made great friends and people who I know for life still, like I said, Andre and many more people who are great, but, but the environment was bad. So after that experience, I was kind of crushed and I was looking for a lot of, well, like I said, I went to therapy. But I also started meditating, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I went to this. Uh, there was a little ashram on the Upper West Side. A friend took me to, um, and the people were chanting and meditating and chanting. And there was a picture of like this, this guru on a chair, and I thought this is weird. And and I was just singing along with this thing, and in in, in Hindi, uh, no Sanskrit, uh, and you know now I'm gonna seem absolutely certifiable myself, but this, the picture of the, there was a man in a, a, a photograph of a man in a chair who was, who was the previous guru. He said, I just looked up and, he, and I heard, come to me, come to me. And I was like, whoa, I'm losing my mind. But it was so strong. Mm -hmm. It said, come now, come now. 
And I sort of dismissed it as like, you know, I'm imagining things, I'm getting wrapped up in this thing. And somehow I left that experience in a daze, in a complete daze for like mm. a few weeks. Wow. I was out of it. I was like, what's going on with me? And then I had a dream of that same man who was like hugging me and said, I said, come. And I said, who is, what is this? Uh, and then two weeks later, I subletted my apartment, quit my job. I was a photographer assistant after I just graduated Juilliard, um, packed my bags and I had moved to the ashram in India and I lived there for a couple of years. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was the best years of my life. It was just unbelievable. And I got a, you know, most people sort of decide to do some kind of spiritual searching later on in life after they've had a career and done everything, then they want to get right with Jesus or God or whatever. I was, uh, and also I have to tell you another big thing that happened is one of my classmates at Juilliard uh, died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also gay and of that age where I was having sex and people were dying. And I wasn't even sure if I had AIDS myself or not at that time, because you couldn't do a test. This is how early it was. Mm -hmm. You couldn't mm -hmm. even do a test. So I said, oh shit, sorry, I'm gonna die sometime soon too. I better get right with myself and with God and whatever there is. And so that also was a huge motivating factor. Uh, and, and that's what- Excuse me, David. Uh, David, yeah. excuse me. Sorry, sorry to cut you off because I want to make sure that we we have to stay on time. But I want to hear more. But I also want folks to hear you read an excerpt from the book. I'm sorry to cut oh, you yeah. off. I'm sorry to no, sorry to that. no. But but we are we are right at a time where, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to take to have this experience, and I I don't want to rush him through this. So David, again, I apologize, but I want to prepare no, everyone please. for David to read an excerpt from the book. So if, ladies and gentlemen, if you will, we're gonna put up an image of, of David's, uh, the, the book, Greenland. And when we come back in a few seconds, we're gonna give David a chance to prepare. And when we come back, David is going to read an excerpt from the book, and uh, which Brian has called a masterpiece. Exactly. So, so, so you all go to uh, amazon.com and please buy the book. So ladies and gentlemen, Here's David Santos Donaldson reading an excerpt from Greenland, the novel. Thank you. Very kind of Brian to say that. Uh, so I'm gonna need to set up a little bit because we haven't talked too much about, about the book, but but I, I did set up a little bit already. And this is about, uh, this as Kip Starling is writing a novel uh, about Muhammad el Adel and Ian e. Foster. Uh, and as he's writing the book, strange things are start happening to him. And the voice of Muhammad, he's trying to tell the story from Muhammad's point of view, as this editor has asked him to do. And as he's doing it, the voice of Muhammad starts to possess him and, and tell him that he's got to go to the wilderness. If he wants to find the true voice of Muhammad, he has to go to the wilderness. And he's not even sure what, what this means, but somehow, the voice takes them over so much that you have to read the book to see how this happens. But strangely, he ends up in Greenland. Hmm. And this is, and uh, I've, I've never read this section before, but 
I was trying to respond to uh, uh, Alvin asked me to read a section that touched a little bit on the relationship with Muhammad and and got some of the spirituality in there. So I'm going to try to read this this uh, a three minute three and a half minute section here of Kip is now in Greenland, uh, and the only thing you need to know is that he's trying to follow Muhammad's mandate to go to the wilderness, and there's plenty of wilderness in Greenland, uh, and um, he's also just had a strange encounter with another guy named Muhammad at the airport who is a young Moroccan guy who's just uh, immigrated to Greenland and works at the airport. So that's the only thing you need to know. And now he's sitting alone in a cafe waiting for uh, someone to come and uh, show him directions, but he's in a cafe by himself. I stand by the cafe's front window and look out over the snowy landscape. The sun is pale, but rising quickly. In just moments, I watch the sky grow lighter, powder blue, lavender, orange, all shades rising up and spreading wide across the atmosphere like watercolors on Japanese rice paper. Directly in front of me, about 600 meters away, is a great fjord as wide as an ocean. The movement of the giant turquoise icebergs is the only indication that there's a body of water there. The icebergs are the size of Gothic cathedrals, slowly floating by on the gray-green horizon. I can't believe I'm actually in Greenland. The somnolent movement of the icebergs and the fjord is hypnotizing. It lulls me into a meditative state. My breathing slows down and the air I take in sinks like an anchor deep in my belly. I think about my favorite poem, Wallace Stevens' The Snowman, about the allusion to a man who has attained, attained such a clear state of consciousness, a mind of winter, that when he beholds the world, he sees not misery, but nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. I feel indistinguishable from what is around me, inseparable from everything beyond. Then I hear his voice. Come, come with me to the wilderness. Muhammad? Yes, it's him. I can even feel the warmth of him. He's close by. Where? I look in front of me and see dark eyes gazing directly at me. And then it occurs to me, these are the same dazzling black eyes of the Bahamas from Muhammad from the airport. Is the Muhammad from Morocco actually a reincarnation of my Muhammad? Has my Muhammad come from me across a century in the body of a young man from Morocco? I remember my talk with Soraya at the ashram years ago, her scientific explanation for the non-existence of time and space, for the illusory distinction between the dead and the living. Could this Muhammad be Muhammad al-Adel coming to be here? Immediately, I dismissed the idea. But I'm in Greenland. But what, are the, what would a Greenlandic person say? The ancestors of the old come back for us. Isn't that what they say? The souls who have died do not rest until their destiny is, until destiny is fulfilled, until their love is complete. Is that really you, my Muhammad? I lean forward and I can feel his breath hot on my face, on my lips, 
I meet his gaze. I see two dark pools, like midnight ponds, inviting me to dive in. I'm staring at his deep inkwell eyes and they mesmerize. I could drown in them. He's going to kiss me, I'm sure. His parted lips are trembling, almost touching my nose. Here it comes. Yes, I want him to kiss me, I realize. I want him completely, so badly. I want you, Muhammad. I lean further forward. I dare to get closer. Thud! My face knocks against the window pane. My forehead smarts from the cold glass. I gasp, confused, horrified now. No, no, it can't be. I shake my head to unsee my own reflection floating there in the glass, ghostly above the snow. But I can't unsee myself. I turn away from the window. What is happening to me? I close my eyes, but I still hear him whispering, come, come with me to the wilderness. Wow. Beautifully written. Wait Just a minute. Beautifully written. I was so following you. I put my phone, my screen on mute so I can follow you. And I, I was so entrenched by your voice. David, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please, can we see by show of clips? Can we all thank David Santos uh, Donaldson, ladies and gentlemen, for that reading? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you mm -hmm. so much, David. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you all. Thank you all very much. I love you guys. Whoa. I love watching you. And I was such an honor to be a guest uh, with you. And uh, I'll treasure this uh, memory. Thank you so much. Thank you well, for coming to I look to forward this to all that you do in the future, too. I really, really appreciate that. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the end of our show. And next week is our Christmas show, uh, Friday, December the 22nd. And we we will have, uh, we will be talking about the movie Rustin, ladies and gentlemen. And we will have uh, Walter Nagel uh, with us, ladies and gentlemen. He wow. is the husband to uh, Bayard Rustin. He will be here with us um, and we cannot wait. As you know, we were going to have him earlier, but the movie was released and he had to go on some, uh, some tours yeah. uh, with, with, with the movie. So he has graciously decided to come back and we will have him here so that we can find out about Bayard Rustin, somebody who was really, really close to him. So thank you. <laughs> uh, please tune in next week. And also I want to put up a picture. You know, you all are getting these uh, he said mugs. And I want to say, Robert, oh, uh, thank you so much um, for, for, for sporting your he, he said, he said mug. We really appreciate it. Yes. And our words of the week for this week, ladies and gentlemen, are actually given to us by David uh, Santos Donaldson. It is his favorite quote. Definitions are for the definers, not for the defined. And those that is a quote by Tony Morrison, ladies and gentlemen, uh, given to us by David. So thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Um, again, thank you all for tuning in tonight. Thank you for all the questions. And, and thank you uh, guys for just supporting us in all that we do. We look forward to seeing you next week on a new episode of He Said. He Said. He Said. Have a good weekend, everybody. Be thank safe. you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody.